Good morning, Four Corners. Let me ask you now to turn in your Bibles, wherever you are, at your home, to Romans chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. That is where we find ourselves now in our series in Romans. And if you were here in the building, which is now very empty, you would see these posters reminding us of some of these high key passages in the book of Romans. But you have there before you your open Bible or on your phone or your iPad, Romans chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. We had two sermons now on Romans and a couple of weeks where we've looked at Matthew 6 together. We've revisited that as a church in light of these current circumstances. But now we return here by video to our series in Romans. I know that it must be strange for you watching this on a screen, and I assure you it is certainly strange for me preaching to an empty room with a camera, or at least almost empty. There are four brothers here uh, in the room with me, uh, but it is largely empty. So these are very strange times. But I preach this sermon today recognizing how much the people of God at Four Corners Church need His Word right now. We need God's Word all the time, every day, but right now, in particular, we need His Word. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8 make clear the power of the Word in the life of the Christian. The law of the Lord, and you could substitute there for law, the Word of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. And then listen to the effect, reviving the soul. And then we read, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So our hearts right now are weighed down and they need to be revived, need to be lifted up to to regain their vitality. And our joy right now needs to be increased and heightened, our, our joy that transcends these circumstances. And what the Bible tells us is that we find this revival and this rejoicing in the Scriptures, in the Word. All of the negative thoughts and emotions that this COVID-19 pandemic has brought and will bring are sufficiently met with the healing balm and sweet honey of God's Word. And I just want to remind you this morning, if you're a Christian, you know this, that the Word of God will bring you peace during this time. And you've already seen that. Undoubtedly, we talked this week in our gospel community group by Zoom, how in various ways and with various texts, God has has brought healing and comfort and strength to us By his precious word. It will bring you peace. I love the imagery of Psalm 1. I frequently mention this psalm. It has played a tremendous role in my own personal life and in the life of my family. We read in Psalm 1 that the person who builds his life in proximity to the word who delights in and meditates upon the word day and night is like a tree, a healthy, vibrant, flourishing tree. But listen to the language specifically that the psalmist gives to describe this tree. 
He says that it yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. It is fruitful, and it is fresh and vital and protected. Why? Why is it that this tree looks like this? And the answer is because the Word of God feeds faith. And where there is proximity to the Word, there is fuel for faith. And it's interesting to me that the the other passage, the parallel passage to this Psalm 1 tree passage is Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 uses the same language. The prophet describes there the person who is like a tree planted by streams of water whose roots go out to the streams as one who trusts the Lord. So Psalm 1 says the one who has the word and Jeremiah 17 says the one who trusts the Lord. The two are connected. It's through the word that we grow in faith. And it's through both of these together that we are like this tree. But I want to specifically take note of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's language for this tree. He says that this person does not fear, does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So fear and anxiety very much playing a role in the hearts and minds of people during these days. But what we are told in God's word is that those who who build their lives on his word, those who delight in it and meditate upon it and trust in it will be fruitful and will not grow fearful. So my prayer for us all is that we would have this peace from the word. And that's why we bring this to you now. What is it that brings us peace and fruitfulness during scary and uncertain times? Specifically, we talk about the word in general. But why is it that the word brings us peace and fruitfulness during times like these? It is because in the word we have the gospel. It is the biblical gospel that brings us peace and fruitfulness during scary and uncertain times. So I want to encourage you now to put all of your fears up on a wall. Just just think about it. All the things that you have been tempted to meditate upon and play out into the future, all the, the images of future distress that you have now running through your mind, take all of those, put those up on a wall and speak to them with the gospel. Speak the gospel at each of those fears. The good news of the Bible stands firm even when we are surrounded by bad news. And remember always that we are not the first Christians to face these kinds of health challenges and many other kinds of challenges during wartime and famine. But we are not the first Christians to walk down this road. Think of the Black Death in the 14th century that killed over 70 million 
people. Or even more recently, in 1918, just over a hundred years ago, the Spanish flu, estimated to have killed over 50 million people. There were brothers and sisters of ours, those who, with whom we will worship God in heaven forever, who walked through both of those. The people of God in every period of human history and in the face of every challenge and distress, cling to the gospel of God. So I want to ask a question to you there at home and even the brothers here in this room. A question for you. Is your mind right now more saturated with the bad news of the media or the good news of the Bible? It is the good news that brings us peace. That is where we find ourselves in Romans. Paul wants to introduce this gospel that he preaches. He introduces here the message of his proclamation. We saw the Apostle Paul introduce himself in verse 1. And we looked at that over two sermons. We, we looked at how Paul describes himself. And he says, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That is how he chooses to introduce himself to these Christians that he's never visited. He's never been to this church or network of house churches in Rome. And so he introduces himself in these ways. He describes himself in terms of ownership, office, and objective. This is the man behind the letter. So that was the title for those two sermons, the man behind the letter. But now, in verses 2 to 4, Paul introduces the message in the letter. We've seen the man behind the letter. Now we see the message in the letter. So that's the title for the sermon this morning is the message in the letter. And this is part one. We will come back next week to this same topic, to the same set of verses. Paul has already labeled it in verse one as the gospel of God. That's why I've referred to it as such in the, my opening comments, the gospel of God. And that tells us before we go any further in Paul's description, before we go any further in Paul's letter, that tells us already that this is good news that brings joy. The word gospel means good news. And so even before we get further description, we know that this is a good news that should rejoice the heart, should delight the heart. And we know from this label that it is from God. This message did not originate in the mind of a philosopher. It did not originate in the mind of a religious sect as they came together. It is not a psychological thing or a sociological thing. It is a divine thing. This gospel comes from the living God. It is not a human invention. It is powerful because it comes from a powerful, the powerful God. But now, in verses 2 
to 4, after labeling it the gospel of God in verse 1, now in verses 2 to 4, he wants to provide a brief description of this message that he preaches. And so that's where we're at right now. We've looked at the man. Now we're looking at the message, verses 2 to 4. So how does Paul introduce the gospel? The gospel that he will unpack throughout the letter And these are my two points. You don't have them on a screen for you, but I want to make clear to you right now, here they are. Here are the two points that you can write down if you would like to. Paul introduces this gospel in two ways. First, it comes out of promise, and second, it concerns a person. So that's what I want you to see over these two messages, this week and next week, that it comes out of a promise. This gospel Paul's going to preach and explain and unpack throughout this letter, it comes out of promise and it concerns a person. So if you would, please look with me here at these verses. We're going to read them. And I would, yes, encourage you to stand for the reading of God's word, even if it is in your living room or your kitchen, or wherever you are right now for this reading of God's Word. What a blessing to know that we're gathered uh, with our families all over this town and other towns, nearby towns. At this time, and I know it's different times of the day, this will be made available uh, late Saturday so that you'll be hearing it throughout the day on Sunday, but to think that your brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of Four Corners are likewise standing and reading and praying and hearing the Word of God preached. We can't be together, but we can center ourselves on this life-giving, peace-giving, hope-sustaining Word from God. So let's read. Romans chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 7 as we've been doing, because this is the bigger unit we're in now, and that is the greeting. So here it is. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, you can be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Ask for his blessing over this material that's being provided, over this sermon, and over all of us during this time. Father, You are holy. Lord, what a reminder as we see our world just in a state of flurry and in a lot of places in a state of panic. What a reminder. What a sobering reminder 
of what Paul will say in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God abides on the world. Lord, this is nothing compared to the distress and turmoil and calamity that will fall on this world when Christ comes. They will run and cry out to the mountains to fall on them, to protect them from the fierce wrath of Almighty God. Lord, how sobering this is to consider that our greatest problem is not that we may die from a virus, but it is that the wrath of God abides on us apart from Christ. So Father, I pray that if we have any listening to this who do not know Christ, who who do not trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, that they would see this as just a taste of what Paul in Romans 2 says will come upon those who are lawless and disobedient to the gospel, who do not believe, who do not repent. God, would this be sobering and would it remind us as Christians of all that has been removed from us and placed on Christ in our place that the pestilence of this fury has been placed upon Christ at the cross, that we have been relieved of our guilt and the punishment from our sinful, lawless deeds against the living God. Father, we praise you for Christ. What wonderful times now to look at the gospel here in Romans to be reminded where our hope is, for all of us to be reminded of the brevity of this life as we've talked about in Ecclesiastes, to be reminded that we're not going to live forever, that this world one day will come to an end and you will remake it. Help us trust you, God, with everything. Every speck of dust is under your sovereign control. And so, Lord, we pray that we would trust that now, that you would bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that it comes out of promise. This gospel of God comes out of promise. Look with me at verse 2. Paul says that his message for which he's been set apart is the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We have to stop, camp out for a moment on what is, what is it that Paul is saying? What's packed into here? And you could go on and on for a long time discussing what is packed into this verse alone. Throughout the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is a constant concern to show that the events of Jesus' life are in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. If you've spent any time in the Gospels reading 
you recognize that that is a constant concern of these writers to show that what's happening in Jesus is a fulfillment of what happened or, or what was written in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. So we get these repeated phrases, just a few of them, and there are many others that we could point to, but we get things like this, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So there's an event, there's something that happens, and and then this description is given, that the scripture might be fulfilled, or the scripture had to be fulfilled, or this was to fulfill the scripture constant refrain as you're going through the Gospels, the, the need and how significant and essential it is that what is happening is a fulfillment of what has been recorded, what has been promised beforehand. With these phrases, the Gospel writers are saying that Jesus is coming, His doing, His speaking, and the circumstances surrounding these things were foretold in the Old Testament and are now actually happening. It has come. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want their readers to know it has come. All that we read in that body of of sacred texts known as the Old Testament to us, to the Hebrew Bible, the sacred scriptures, all that is found therein. It is happening now, what was promised. And in fact, after his resurrection, Jesus explained to his disciples how the Old Testament scriptures were all about him. He, as Luke describes it, he opened the scriptures to them. And that's what really happens when we are preaching is that we are, we are coming to the scriptures and, and through interpretation of Scripture, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, interpreting passages in their context, interpreting them prayerfully in light of all of Scripture. We are, we are opening the Scriptures, but, but how much more Christ himself to these disciples after his resurrection, these two disciples walking along the road, he comes to them and he sits with them and he opens up the scriptures to them and he tells them how the Old Testament is about him. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses. Those are the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, comprehensive in nature, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible study this must have been. Absolutely unfathomable. But it wasn't just after the resurrection that Jesus said things like this. It wasn't just after he was raised from the dead that he came along and said, oh, by the way, now that I'm raised from the dead, I want you to clearly see that the Old Testament is about me, that the Hebrew scriptures, the the writings of the prophets, going back all the way to Moses, to Genesis, are about me. Jesus had been making these claims all along. So we read Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, 
but to fulfill them. And Jesus makes this statement in the Sermon on the Mount. This is at the very beginning of his ministry as he's gathering disciples to himself. So from the very beginning of Christ's proclamation of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God, he says, I've come to fulfill what you have read in the scriptures up till now. And then we have John 5, 39. You search the scriptures, Jesus says, to the religious leaders who who make their life about knowing the scriptures, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, all these different categories, and they overlap with each other. These religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, made the claim that the Old Testament was about him. And when these Old Testament scriptures, these writings, are mentioned or quoted, they are regarded always as from God. Hear this, they are regarded always, when they're mentioned in the New Testament, when they're projecting back on the Old Testament, they're talking about those writings and reflecting upon them and mentioning them and quoting them. They are always regarded as from God and inerrant. They are holy, as Paul says here, through his prophets in The holy scriptures, they are holy and they are unbreakable. Why do I say they're unbreakable? That's exactly what Jesus says about the Old Testament scriptures. They are unbreakable. John 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken. It's interesting to me, that passage is so fascinating because there Jesus is, he is trying to explain a fine point of the scriptures. It's not a major, major overarching point of theology. He is trying to describe a fine point there. And he, in the midst of that, says really as a a parenthetical remark, oh, and the scriptures, do they not say this? And then he says, "Uh, the scriptures cannot be broken. So if I can demonstrate to you, Jesus is saying, that this is what the scriptures say, and in fact they do say that, then you must embrace it because the scriptures are always true. They're infallible. They're inerrant because they come from an infallible and errant God. They are holy because they come from a holy God. So 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired. So unbreakable and inspired. In 2 Peter 1.20, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. Listen to this. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophet, the Old Testament, and this goes For everyone, not just the prophet, strictly speaking, Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, and so forth. But all of those who were declaring, David and Moses, all of those who are declaring and writing these things down. The prophet spoke and wrote for God, on God's behalf. These words of prophecy which are written as scripture are given through men 
but they do not originate with men. And hear this, nor are they tainted by men. In other words, going back to Jesus' words, Jesus knows that Isaiah wrote such and such, and Jeremiah wrote such and such, and Moses wrote such and such. But Jesus is saying that even though it was by the hand of Moses, or by the hand of Jeremiah or Isaiah, that, that God in his sovereignty, in his providence, in his power, can so give words to prophets carried along by the Holy Spirit who can speak those words and write those words down such that they are inerrant and infallible. So they do not originate with those prophets, nor are they tainted by those prophets, but from God, protected by God, in his book for us now. Rather than being tainted, rather than being from men, they are carried along by the Holy Spirit to an unbreakable product. And that unbreakable product is called here by Paul the Holy Scriptures. An unbreakable product. I just want to stop for a moment, have you reflect on this word holy. The word of God is holy. You know, I've heard people say before that, well, you know, uh, Christians who talk about the Bible all the time, really, just it's, it's called uh, bibliolatry, right? It's an idolatry of the Bible. That's nonsense. Of course, you can... Make an idol of, as the Pharisees did, your knowledge of a, of a text for your own self-righteousness and your own pride. Of course, you can love your brand new Bible that you got from Amazon, that you got in the mail, that has leather or calf skin or whatever and perfect margins and all those things that you wanted to have in a Bible. Of course, you can, you can idolize a physical object. But it's nonsense to speak of a person who honors God and loves God and reveres him as holy and who does the same for his word to be idolatrous in his devotion to the word of God. That's silliness. We come to God. We know God. We delight in God. We worship God because we come to him through his word. That's where we find him. And the word here is described as holy. It calls us to... A posture. Even now as you look down at your printed Bible. A posture of reverence. A posture of awe. Christian, you hold in your hand something that is holy. Holy. Do your children know that you think the Bible is holy? What's holy and sacred to you at home, in your free time? God's word is holy. And what Paul is saying here in his introduction to the Roman Christians is that in these ancient, unbreakable, Christ-centered documents, God had promised the gospel, the good news that Paul now 
preaches. Elsewhere, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul traces these gospel promises all the way back to Abraham. Listen to this. Paul describes, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the Old Testament. And when we read language like this, we immediately want to go and we want to look at all the prophecies that talk about Christ's coming. And we, we could do that. But Paul's language here is more general. He wants you to understand. He wants the Roman Christians to understand. He wants us to understand that the whole Old Testament is about Christ. The whole Old Testament is promising the gospel. But in Galatians 3 in particular, he traces it back specifically to Abraham. We're familiar with that as a church. We spend a lot of time talking about Abraham, watching his faith unfold, watching God's faithfulness to him unfold. This is what Paul says, Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Which means that all the unfolding of the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament that we could go and point to, that we often point to around Christmas time, like Isaiah 9, 6, or Micah 5, 2, all of these passages we point to at Easter, like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, specific prophecies of Christ's coming, that all of these really are kind of coming out of, they're, 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 they're unfolding out of that, that promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul is saying that the gospel is that very thing going out to the world. The blessing of all the families of the earth in Abraham, Abraham's offspring, Christ, is the gospel. The gospel is going out in fulfillment of that promise and all the rest. But I think it gets even more interesting when we see at the end of Romans 16, verse 20, Paul seems to go back further. You may say, okay, well, we've gone back to Abraham, but what about those people before Abraham? Romans 16, Paul seems to take these gospel promises not just back to Abraham in Genesis 12, but all the way back to Genesis 3 with the crushing of the serpent. So we hear this language, chapter 16, verse 20. And, and you may skip over this if you're reading through Romans 16 because, because you're chopping your way through the weeds of all those names like Rufus and so forth, names that are absolutely strange to us. I joke with my wife Jennifer that we may name our next child Rufus. She says that's not happening. But all kinds of names that we don't, that we don't expect to read and we're just reading those and we're just kind of getting a, a little bit bogged down and maybe we, we grow weary and we stop reading. But if we keep going, we get to verse 20 and we read Paul say this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's amazing. That has to be a reference to Genesis 3. In other words, Christ has already crushed Satan under his feet. And those who are united to Christ, though journeying, pilgrim, going on a pilgrimage through this world, we will in time functionally and in reality and fully have crushed Satan under our feet in Christ. 
So Paul wants to take us all the way back to Genesis 12, but even further to Genesis 3. Christian, listen to this. The gospel you believe and which you cling to right now in this time of uncertainty and at all times. I want you to see this. This gospel in which you have put your trust is ancient and reliable. It spans human history. It is the subject of the 66 inspired and sacred books of the Bible, written over thousands of years by many, many authors. And it is clearly confirmed by hundreds of prophecies promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. And not just prophecies, but types, pictures, the Lamb, the blood, Passover, Moses, who promises a prophet like him will come, David, a type of Christ as he defeats Goliath, and as he brings a golden age to Israel. One greater than Solomon is here, Jesus says. All the wisdom of Solomon and the boldness and courage of Elijah and the strength of Samson, all the prophets, pictures of Christ. Hundreds of prophecies, pictures, promised in the old, fulfilled in the new. Now, Paul is saying, now the promised gospel has come. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we studied this a while ago as a church. For the grace of God has appeared. Not as though the grace of God was not working in the Old Testament saints, but the dawn of the gospel of Jesus Christ has come, he's saying. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I've already indicated this, but I want to make this clear as we move to the second point. This gospel message is not a mere teaching or an idea or a set of ideas or a system of ideas. This message is a person. The gospel of God concerns a person. We've seen that it comes out of a promise. That was our first point here. Comes out of promise, rather. Comes out of promise. And secondly, now we move to this truth. It concerns a person. Look at verses 3 to 4. Verses 3 to 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, According to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. What a set of phrases we have here. In typical fashion, Pauline fashion, Paul is throwing the kitchen sink at us at the very beginning. We read these 
these phrases and, and the way they strike us, that the meatiness of it and the way they're, they're all packed together. He is giving us the core of his message. And as he does so, as he introduces his gospel, we are drinking here from a fire hydrant. John Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, says concerning verse 4, what is said has been made obscure by the close folding of the words. So Chrysostom is saying that what we have here in verse 4 is it's difficult to, to, to get at quickly because the, the phrases and the words are folded together. They're, so, they're packed so tightly. And he goes on to say, and so it is necessary to divide it. And that is what we will spend our time doing next week. We will unfold and divide these rich layers of these verses. But what I want to end with today is this one overarching point. Like I said, we'll pick up next week with these same verses, part two of the message in the letter. But I want us to, at least before we move on now, get this one major point. The gospel is about a person. This good news of God is one, verse three, concerning his son. What's the gospel about Christ, the Son. Luther, Martin Luther, Protestant reformer, said this, everything must be understood in relation to Christ. And John Calvin, another Protestant reformer, wrote, the whole gospel is contained in Christ. To move even a step from Christ, even a step from Christ is to withdraw oneself from the gospel. Do you hear that? This is about a person. It's not a philosophy. It's not a moral, a set of moral guidelines. It's not a nice set of stories for your children. It is Christ. It's a person. Our consolation, Christians, in prosperity and poverty, in health and sickness, in life and in death. Our consolation is Jesus. He himself is the good news. Christ is the good news. So I love the song. All I have is Christ. At the end of the day, what more do you have? You have nothing. We came into the world with nothing, and we will leave with nothing. Man was made from dust. He will return to dust. Each of us in our own time, according to God's plan, will die. But the sweetness of having Christ in that moment and forever. So why? Why should you not be worried, Christian? As we talked about for the last two weeks from Matthew 6, why should you not be worried? And Jesus gives many answers to that question there. Seven different answers we looked at there in Matthew chapter 6. 
seven facets to Jesus' argument. But the simple answer is this. Why should we not be worried? Because of the Son of God. All that He is and all that He's done must come to bear on all that we face. Lift up your eyes, Christian, to the mighty Son of the living God. Make Him your meditation during this season. Not ideas. Christ. And all the days of your life. Let this this situation in which our hearts are in a little turmoil in our homes and our community, we're spread out. Let this be a, a restart for you. The way you will approach God during this, the way you will depend on his word during this, let this not be just for this season. And then if you don't get sick and things do go back to normal and everything is as it was, the Bible goes back on the shelf You go back meditating on the world and you lose sight of this Christ. May it not be. Look at him. Consider him. Delight yourself in him. Treasure him. For he is the only one who will be with you in the hour of your death. Whenever That may come. Paul introduces Christ here at the beginning of verse 3 as the Son of God, and at the end of verse 4, he is called Jesus Christ our Lord. Christological titles are packed in here, which is why we're going to take some time to look at it next week. His Lordship, Christ's Lordship, has already been hinted at when Paul called himself a slave. He said, That he is a slave of Christ. That implies that Christ is his master or his Lord. Christ is the supreme ruler of all. And he is the one who possesses those whom he has redeemed. But what is Paul's logic in these verses? How is Paul introducing Christ to us here? That is the topic we will take up next week. We've seen that it concerns a person. Now we're going to look a little more at this person next week. But for now, I will say that I think one of the best parallel passages we have for this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, which Mark read to us earlier. And we looked at this passage. We, we dove into this passage. We dug into it over the course of Advent this past year. Let me put it before us one more time because I think it really does provide a parallel to what we see here Paul describing in these short but tightly packed verses. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus and here it is who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God 
has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, take heart, Christian. Take heart. This Jesus, this Lord, this Son of God is yours. He is yours. And he will be yours forever. And even more, even more, we are his. Romans chapter 14, verse 8. Hear these words. Whatever may come, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You belong to Christ. You are His and He is yours. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your glorious gospel. We thank you that it is ancient and reliable, that it is fulfilled, proclaimed in the old as coming, and proclaimed in the new as a person who has come. God, we praise you for Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that he is the mighty Son of God, the Lord the Christ, the Son, that in Him all is well, all is safe, all is sound. We will live forever in Christ. There will be no pestilence in that day. There will be no fear. There will be no end to perfect joy and peace in the presence of the triune God. You, our God, We praise you this day, during this time, in Jesus' name, amen.